today we uh, are in, uh, as we were last week, we are in Genesis chapter 47. And last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 12, which included the presentation of Joseph's family, his brothers, to Pharaoh. And then the presentation of his father Jacob to Pharaoh and uh, and the interaction between Jacob and Pharaoh. And, uh, and then this week, uh, I want to uh, pick up with verse 13 and hopefully get down through verse 26. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But <clears throat> let's just kind of go back and see if we can remember some of the things that we talked about last week. Uh, about uh, the presentation of those of the family and of Jacob to Pharaoh. What do you remember from that? <clears throat> Did anybody get any great epiphanies this week to help clarify our lesson last week? Maybe I shouldn't have prefaced my question. <laughs> Just whatever. To me, the real epiphany was about when we make clear our position as Christians, not only does that help ourselves, it reinforces our own sense of being separated and apart from the world. Keep us holy. But then it's kind of like a double blessing because people who don't want to be around Christians. Yeah. They keep they keep their distance, and that that is an asset to us. Yeah. 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 Great. Yeah, it is. If if uh, the reason people uh, abhor us is because of our uh, because of our stand for righteousness and truth and and the name of Christ, yeah. It reminds me of that passage in uh, I think it's Second Corinthians that says we're a fragrance to God and light and those who are perishing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's yeah. That's a good reference. I, I was amazed looking back. Um, Again, thinking about Joseph and, and his wisdom in instructing the family what to say, and mm-hmm. thinking about his wisdom, knowing we need, we must, God you know, requires us to be separate, and this is the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And he was he's, uh, using the very thing that the people, the very, I guess, characteristic or, or whatever it is about that culture, using that as a tool to help him yeah. and their family further yeah. their their cause and their, their need to be separate. Yeah. There are many points in the story of Joseph where I, you know, I'm just impressed by the insight. And we're going to see that again today uh, in, in some interesting ways. Uh, Joseph's insight into uh, dealing with situations is just really remarkable. And I think about that. I think it says of Solomon, he was the wisest man that ever lived. And I'm thinking, well, maybe there's a close second there in Joseph because he was really, really quite astute. Anything else? What was what was Joseph's excuse me, what was Jacob's self assessment <laughs> that uh, that we encountered in that passage last week? I, I thought that was the most striking passage. His comment was that he had a few years and an unhappy life. Uh huh. That just seems sad. <laughs> it, it it does seem sad, uh, and of course Mike raised the question: Is that really even an accurate assessment? Was he was he was he being excessively pessimistic? What do you think about that? Well, I thought a couple of weeks ago I, I missed the lesson last week, but a couple of weeks ago when we started talking about this idea, and you pointed out the contrast between him and Joseph and the, the fact that God was with both of them mm-hmm. the whole time. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me one acted with faith and the other did not. Mm-hmm. Now, on a consistent, and I'm not talking about believing God, but I'm talking about in the daily act, activity mm-hmm. of life. Right. Faith that causes you to have a, 
a positive yeah. perspective as opposed to a negative. And I concluded, even though we didn't talk about it, I concluded Joseph was more successful at remembering who God was in his life and having a positive outlook as opposed to um, Jacob, yeah. who just seemed to think everything was negative. Yeah. So, that's okay. what I thought it was. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's an element of truth to that. And I thought it was interesting that he pointed out that his life was not as long as his right. forefathers. Yeah. Of course, his life wasn't over yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, for some reason, he had some sense of impending death and had apparently for some time. But, but he does end up, as we mentioned last week, he did end up dying at 147. Which, which was significantly younger than both Isaac and Abraham before him. So, so he did. Uh, but when you and I think about living to be 147, and we think, boy, that's a, that's a long time. But in his time, that was relatively short. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me throw this out, too, for this talking here. Okay, and then, <laughs> and then we'll throw it out. Okay. <laughs> Reading in the Proverbs, you read that the... A blessing of God and a blessing of wisdom is a long life. But to me, this is life is a real struggle, and I think heaven would be much better. <laughs> so, I have to get the proper perspective on this, and I think his viewpoint and their viewpoint, Jacob's viewpoint, was that the long life is a blessing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure how that ties together, but you know, maybe he's saying, well, I'm not getting the blessing like well I think there's a I think there's a, there's a bit of a paradox in the life of Jacob because he very clearly is blessed and he knows he's blessed he understands that he's blessed and yet he has this whole litany of tragedies and difficulties in his life that we you know and I and I listed some of those last week that he goes through just one right after another just you know of extremely difficult situations, any one of which, if we encountered him, would have set us back considerably. And he has, a, he has a whole sequence of these in his life. And yet, at the same time, he is a man of faith in that he, he wants the blessing, he desires the blessing, he has the blessing, and he knows he has the blessing from God, and he bases his contemplation of the future on that understanding that he has the blessing. And... Uh, and so I think Jacob presents a real paradox for us, and I think to some degree shows just how real the scriptures present people to us. They don't, you know, they don't take these old saints and make them, you know, into these gold-plated statues. They they show us their feet of clay, etc. No. Yeah, I think this pretty well sums up Jacob when it says this is in Genesis chapter twenty-eight, verse verse twenty. Says that Jacob. Uh, He's kind of a, a later, on the way because, uh, so that Jacob made a vow saying that God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I may take, that I may take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. But right now he's he's not even at this point he's not sold out. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 Well, so he certainly does encounter a great deal of difficulty. And as he looks back on his life, as he's speaking to Pharaoh, he acknowledges that. But the paradox then, as Mike was pointing out last week, is here's this guy who's had all this trouble in his life and he kind of looks at life and then he turns around to bless, (laughs) to give this blessing to Pharaoh. And you go, uh, you know, is there some kind of disconnect here? Uh, But. But, you know, I don't know, I don't know what all the lessons are there for us to learn. But one of the things that strikes me about that, uh, as I was thinking about it even again yesterday, I was thinking as as individuals, uh, we go, we we have different kinds of experiences in life. And let's just face it. Some people have more trouble than others. Right. Some people go through life and. And and they, they seem really blessed. And of course, everybody has suffering and a man is, is born for sorrow as the sparks fly up, upward. And so everybody has suffering. Everybody encounters death in the family and various kinds of struggles and conflicts of relationships. Everybody has that to some degree. But but you and I all know some people who who, who whose lives kind of seem to be golden <laughs> and they seem to go through life kind of relatively uh, compared to most people, uh, uh, they do fairly well. And then, and then we all know some people who 
who the, the evil and the difficulty, and, the, and these are oftentimes believers, the evil and the difficulty that they encounter in their life sometimes just overwhelms us to even think about it. They're just one thing after another uh, or the intensity of experiences. I was thinking of a, uh, of a, a woman who, a couple actually, who was in our class um, a number of years ago. And, uh, and then eventually the woman lost her husband. And then a few years later, uh, just about a, a couple of weeks before her daughter was to be married, lost her daughter, both of them, to drunk or intoxicated uh, drivers. And, you know, when I think about that poor woman's life and experience, of course, she loves the Lord. She's gone on to serve the Lord. She's serving the Lord even today. But I just think of just the overwhelming evil that she's experienced in her life. And, and we all know people like that uh, who, who just experienced great difficulty. And yet, as, as that woman herself is an example, even... For those of us as believers who experience great adversity and difficulty in our life, we still are in a place to bless others. And that's one of the things that strikes me about Joseph, that even though he knows, even though in his own experience he's had much sorrow and much difficulty, some of it self-inflicted, but certainly not all of it self-inflicted. But even though he's had all this, he understands that he has a blessing from God and that he is in a place to be a blessing to others. And, uh, and and that's instructive to me. So, yes, some of it's missing here. Maybe one reason I instruct me was called by God. Well, it kind of sounds like me. Can uh, tend to be negative sometimes or, or state things well. But usually, you know, a Christian will wrap it up with, "Well, life is." Uh, somebody told me one time that the theme of the whole Psalms is, "Life is hard, but God is good." Yeah. And usually a Christian, and you know, I always try to do it, you know, wrap it up. Well, yes, we had this and this and this, but God has pulled us through. And there's, there's no but in there. Yeah. You know, he just kind of like, I'm here to bless you. And by the way, my life's been really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real paradox, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of like, I don't want a blessing from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in reality, the blessing isn't from us, is it? Yeah. Of course, it's hard for other people to understand that if they look at our lives and but see them. If you see a person who's elderly and they're getting, you know, you ask them whether you know they're a Christian, mm-hmm. and they just complain about their life, yeah. they don't really say much otherwise. Yeah. 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 Well, and and you know, we have to wonder at this point is, you know, excuse me, is Jacob's outlook here exactly what it ought to be? Maybe it's not. You know. I think there are elements of faith in the things he says when he refers to his life as a sojourn. Uh, but there is a distinct possibility here that Jacob still is wrestling with having the right kind of attitude towards God. Yeah. I would have been almost embarrassed to say in front of Joseph who spent his entire life in prison unjustly. Yeah. Yeah. And his attitude, Joseph's attitude was Yeah. Yeah. It really is a, quite a stark contrast. Well, those are things to think about. But we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go on. Uh, those are all good things to think about. And uh, obviously, we don't have all the answers to them. But uh, if you thought last week's lesson presented you problems, today's lesson will be even more so. Okay. Uh, so let's read the passage and, uh, and then we'll pick it up and, and see what we can glean from it. Beginning in verse 13, we have really a change. Uh, we have a change in the narrative. Uh, we began uh, uh, several chapters ago with the whole story of Pharaoh's two dreams or one dream that really kind of was broken down into two parts. And, and Joseph's interpretation of the dream that there was going to be this great famine. Okay. And uh, at first there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of this very severe Famine, and now the the famine has kind of been a an undercurrent in the story of Joseph so far. Okay, it's been kind of in the background. It's the reason why the family ends up coming to Egypt and stuff, but it's really not the primary story. In the verses that we look at today, the famine becomes foremost. This is the story now. Okay, and uh, and and only here, and then we go on to other things, but. 
But so the focus beginning in verse 13 now is the famine itself and the severity of the famine and the things that the famine precipitates. So beginning in verse 13, it says, now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all the livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh had gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. And the harvest you shall, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own for seed of the field, and for your food, and for those of your households, and as for food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day. That Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Okay. Well, there's a there's a lot for us to talk about here, uh, so we'll we won't try to go any further. Um, the uh, we need to understand uh, one thing: the time frame of this passage. This passage itself is coming. At some point during the middle to the end of the seven years of famine. Okay, so when it talks about one year and then it talks about the next year, it's not talking about the first and second year of the famine, but it's talking about some point at the middle of the famine and apparently very close to the end of the famine because he talks about them actually planting the planting the seed and, and growing grain, and he's anticipating the future where they're going to be growing grain. So it appears that that we're coming close to the end of that seven-year period, and he has that to some degree uh, in, in his sight. Uh, as we look at this passage, uh, primarily what I want to do today is I just kind of want to lay a lot of foundational information, just stuff, just background information that we need if we're going to understand the story of Joseph and if we're going to understand the Scriptures. So that's primarily what I want to accomplish uh, today. And so we'll take some time and we'll just look at the story and then we'll go back and, and look at why is this story here and uh, and deal with some of the problems that are in the passage. But before we do that, let's just get this right out in the open to start with. When you read this passage, do you have any problems with it? The only problem, he says. The only problem we have here is we have Joseph enslaving people. Nothing major. <laughs> 
Anything else? Well, I thought communism didn't work very well. Okay. It seems like the seven-year plan didn't work very well. He was preparing for the seven years of famine, and it looks like he kind of ran out. Okay. Okay. And if this affected the Israelites in Goshen as well, selling the land and all, so you're starting to set the stage for them being slaves later on. Okay. Okay, you all are raising great questions, okay? And these are some of the things we need to talk about today. It may not be the most inspiring study you've ever heard, but this is some things, these are some things we need to understand. Well, on the flip side, though, I mean, the first time I was on government guy. <laughs> yeah, this guy, this guy would do great in Washington, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, but he's turning around. He never, and maybe this is a positive, he never did welfare. I mean, they always yeah. had to give something to get something from the government. Okay. And I, I think that you'll probably get here when you get down to the end of where they sold their land, which, which is really capitalism. You know, if I want something to you, I buy it. When, when, he, when they had nothing left, he put them to work, and he got to keep 80% of it, which is okay. most. Yeah. I mean, you don't run a farm and then farm for, you know, use it a half or a third. Yeah. That's a yeah. pretty good deal, yeah. so... In a way, it was a merciful thing. Okay, great. These are all great points, and these are things we need to talk about today. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's very easy to read this passage and set it in a 20th or 21st century context, isn't it? And that's a serious mistake. Okay. Because we're not dealing with a 21st century context or even a 20th century context. We are dealing with a context of the second millennium BC. Okay? Totally different culture. Totally different society. We have to keep in mind again, as we have tried to do all the way through the book of Genesis, is that we are dealing with a patriarchal tribal culture. Okay? That changes all the dynamics of everything. Okay? It radically changes many things. And, and in order to understand the book of Genesis and understand much of Scripture, we have to remember the culture we're dealing with. We're not dealing with a highly industrialized, uh, segmented culture like we have today. We're dealing with a very family-oriented, patriarchal, tribal culture. We also we're not dealing with an industrialized society. We're dealing with which, which, what is essentially exclusively an agrarian culture. Okay? So these are things that we need to keep in mind as we try to understand this passage and as we try to understand the whole story of Genesis and the Pentateuch and, and the Old Testament. So these are some of the things that, <clears throat> that we want to think through uh, as we try to understand the passage. Okay? Now, just... Uh, just uh, one of the questions that comes to mind before we even really kind of think through the story. One of the questions comes to mind is, well, let's back. Let's do it the other way around. Let's talk through the story and then we'll talk about why is this passage here. OK, so we have the situation. We're preliminary. This is what I thought. And I, I may not remember. But does it say when they brought in the grain during the Good years, and he, he took a, I think mm-hmm. the grain. Did mm-hmm. he say he paid them for it, or they just took it as a tax? And to me, that that was always an issue. If he bought it from them, he can sell it back to them. If he if he exacted it, what time of affair? It appears that they took it as a tax, and we do need to understand that as they were accumulating this grain during the during the years of plenty. The people were not storing the grain themselves. They were turning the grain over to Joseph, and Joseph was storing it in these massive granaries. And at first, you'll remember, at first they were keeping track of it, and they were kind. Of, and then it just got to be so much they quit counting how much grain they had. It just got to be such a massive amount of grain. Okay, so that was the that was the initial context, and it appeared uh, uh, it appears like it was just exacted from them. Okay. Uh, so we, we are now at this point in the 
in the famine where the people have been up till now, as the family of Jacob was doing, buying their grain. Okay, But the story tells us here that they have now exhausted all the money they could find in Egypt and in Canaan. Okay, So both the land of Canaan and, both the, land, and the land of Egypt, uh, it uses the word found there, the money that was found. And the idea is they have scoured the land for all the money they could get. And all that money now has been spent to purchase this grain and uh, the money has then been transferred into Pharaoh's house or in other words, into the government. Okay, so all the money has been transferred. So now the people are left penniless. They have no grain or they have no money with which to buy grain. So at that point, the passage tells us that the people come to Pharaoh, uh, come to Joseph. And what are they asking for? Okay, and what offer do they make? No, they didn't offer anything. Yeah, yeah, they just came to Joseph and they said, "Give us food." Okay, why should we die before your eyes? Okay, does Joseph then just give them food? What does he do? Okay, he asks for their livestock. Okay, so so he says uh, he, he doesn't just give them a handout, but instead he says, you give me your livestock and I will give you food. Now, the problem that we have, one of the problems we have when we read this passage is we is we 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 kind of we tend to look at it like maybe Joseph is exploiting the people here. But let's just think this thing through a minute. Here are people who are starving to death. They have no money with which to buy grain. Okay. But they do have livestock. And Joseph says to them, you give me your livestock and I will give you grain. Think that through just a little bit. Is there is there any redeeming factor or element in Joseph's offer? Okay, the livestock are going to die anyway, right? Okay, so by buying the livestock, he preserves the livestock alive, right? Because he has grain to keep them alive. What else? He preserves the dignity of the people. Okay, okay, the dignity of the people is preserved. They're not just simply living. Of the government, okay, so to speak, they are, they are, still in a sense being productive. They are purchasing their sustenance. Okay, what else? Think about, think about the relationship of the livestock to the people who own them. That's a maybe a weird way to ask the question. I ask some lousy questions sometimes <laughs> when I know what I'm the answer I'm trying to get. I was thinking if they probably could, but in our culture, I don't know what they did, but in our culture you would get milk from the livestock, you use the livestock for work. They would I they probably didn't do any plowing because the ground was out there, but there was other benefits from the livestock. Well, well, you hit on something there is typically livestock are used. Uh, the horses, the cattle, etc. are used for tilling the ground. Right. OK. So but now we have livestock that are useless. Right. They're useless in this context. OK. Or they have minimal value in the context. There may have been some. But they're not even going to be producing much milk or whatever under the circumstances because they also are living on a sustenance diet. Okay, but not only that, but if you are you and your family are starving to death and you have horses and cattle and what's happening to them over here? They're not getting food or they're taking food from the family, right? So when we look at Joseph's offer to the people or his his stipulation to the people, you bring me your livestock. What he's doing is he's actually meeting a number of needs. One, he's keeping the livestock alive, which is not going to happen if they stay with these individual Egyptians. The second thing is 
the livestock have minimal practical use at this point to the Egyptians. But if they're kept alive, they will in the future have use for them if we can keep them alive. So Joseph's offer will help keep the livestock alive. In addition, Joseph is alleviating the families of the burden of having to care for this livestock in this horrible, severe famine. Okay. So what we begin to see then is that Joseph is not is not exploiting the people by taking their livestock. But he is achieving all these various objectives by making this offer to them. You give me your livestock and I will give you grain. But I think the most important element in what Joseph is doing is the thing that Jim mentioned is they are retaining their dignity. They are not simply just now living. We, as we go back to, if we remember all the way back to the very beginning of our study in Genesis three years ago in, in, uh, in the story of creation, one of the things that we understood as we studied the creation of man, that man was created in the image of God. And one of the aspects of the image of God that we were created in is we were created to subdue the earth and to cultivate the garden. Okay? That's one of our jobs. And, and we were given that job, we were given that task because doing that task is an expression of the image of God. It's what we are as human beings. We are created by God to be productive. And when we as human beings cease to be productive, we have a profound sense of the loss of our dignity as being in the likeness of God. And so when Joseph is ensuring that the people still have some sense of being productive in their lives, he is helping them to retain this sense of dignity of being made in the likeness of God. This is not an incidental thing. This is not an unimportant thing. This is a crucial thing for you and I as human beings. That we have some sense or some understanding that that. That we, that we are in the likeness of God and one of the ways that we are like God is that we are productive. And we demonstrate that as human beings by our subduing of the earth and the cultivating of the garden. Okay? So that's one of the things that Joseph is achieving in this offer or demand or request or whatever that he makes that they bring him their livestock. So they bring their livestock and eventually they have brought all their livestock to Joseph and that year passes on and they've survived another year and now they come to the next year and they have no money and they have no livestock. So now what do they do? Okay. They say all we've got left is ourselves and our land. And we are offering to Pharaoh our bodies and our land as slaves. Okay? And uh, so, we'll do that and you give us food. Now, it's interesting that this second time they come to Joseph, the first time they come and they say, you know, we're out of money, just give us food. And, Pharaoh, and Joseph says, no, you've got to give me your livestock. The next time they come, they don't come just simply saying, you know, give us food. They understand that that's not going to work with Joseph. So the second time they come to Joseph, they come with an offer. And they say, we will give you ourselves and we will give you our land if you will give us money. Okay. Now, Joseph agrees to this offer. And he buys these people as slaves for Pharaoh. And he buys their land. Okay? And by the time this whole transaction is over, Pharaoh owns all the land of Egypt and all the people of Egypt except for the priests. Okay? So the priests are the exception. Okay? But other than that, we have all the land of Egypt belongs to Pharaoh. All the people belong to Pharaoh. Okay? They are his slaves. All right? And then Joseph sets forth the statute by which this whole process is going to operate. And I think Mike already mentioned it here. But, but what, was the, what was the agreement, how things were going to work?
Pardon? They keep 80%. Well, before that, before we get to the 80%, what's the, what's the first part? What, what, what? Pharaoh gets a fifth. That's where it starts, okay? And the harvest, right off the bat, Pharaoh gets a fifth. And so you will give a fifth of your grain to, a fifth of the grain to Pharaoh. Then he says, about the 80%, what does he say about that 80%? To whom does it belong? It belongs to them. He is giving them property rights. He is giving to these people of whom he has already been sensitive to their need for human dignity. He has given to them the grain which is theirs to decide what to do with. He calls it theirs. And he says you can plant your fields. You can feed your families, you can feed your households, you can feed your children, but it's their grain, and he gives them 80% of it. Somebody back here was going to say something. Gary. Yeah. My version says that, that they offer the people. We are not just servants. Okay, what's your translation? Uh, amplified. Okay, we'll get into all that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into all that. Uh, so. Uh, so they set up this arrangement then by which tw- uh, 20% goes to Pharaoh, 80% belongs to the people. Okay. And as Mike pointed out, that's actually pretty generous. Uh, typical in the ancient Near East, in this type of a tenant-farmer type of situation, typically uh, a, third of the, a third of the grain went to the the lord of the land or the, or the king or whatever, and, and two-thirds of it was reserved for the So actually, Joseph is being relatively liberal here. And when we think about today's circumstances, how much of our resources and our income goes to the government as compared to how much we get to keep. Uh, actually, Joseph is uh, actually being far more liberal than our own system of government is being for us. Okay, So it's actually, uh, it's actually a fairly generous offer that Joseph is making. Okay. 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 And we'll get into all that too. These are all things we need to talk about, and uh, we may not get to them all today, actually. Okay. Um, and so, what is the response of the people? You saved our lives. So what we have is here people who have just been bought into slavery who are grateful for it. Okay? They're glad they've been bought into slavery. Okay? This arrangement's going to work good for them. It's going to improve their living situation. Okay? And so they are grateful for it. And then it simply goes on to mention that this arrangement that Joseph made with the people uh, uh, continues up until the day the, the narrator records this story, which could be up until the day of Moses. Yes. Well, I suspect that the people in the land around them would like to have that community because they would die. Yes, yes, exactly. And, so they really at it as a... and it's interesting that at the beginning of this passage we looked at today, it keeps talking about Canaan and Egypt, Canaan and Egypt. But when it comes to they run out of money, it says all the Egyptians. It doesn't say the Canaanites. So from this point on, it's just the Egyptians and you're left to wonder what's happening to the Canaanites when the Egyptians are going on to negotiate with Joseph and find these things. So it's just a question that's actually left unanswered. Well, one of the questions that comes to our minds as we look at this passage, any passage of Scripture, but certainly this passage of Scripture, one of the questions that comes to our mind is why is this story in here? Why is this information in here? Okay, the Holy Spirit is not random in the things that he records for us. He only had a limited amount of space to tell us everything that he wanted to tell us, and he chose to tell us this. And the question is, is why? Well, there's several reasons that are given for this passage uh, being, uh, being in the canon and being in the Scripture. And one of them is that this story demonstrates for us very clearly, more so than anything we've had so far in the story of Joseph, demonstrates us for us so clearly how extreme and urgent the situation was which Joseph faced and which the family of Jacob faced. Okay, This is not, you know, we had a drought here in Oklahoma this summer and it was rough and there was a lot of, there were a lot of crops out there in western Oklahoma that didn't grow this year. Okay, We, we know drought and we know 
uh, those kind of difficulties to some extent. But when we're talking drought and we're talking famine in the story of Joseph, we are talking something of incomprehensible devastation. Okay. And clearly life-threatening, not to a few, but to entire nations of people. Okay. And so that's one of the things that the passage makes clear to us is how dire the situation was and so why, why it was imperative that Joseph act in the way he acted. Joseph is not acting in the way he acts uh, out of some kind of whim or you know, some kind of political agenda, if you will. Joseph is acting in, in one of the most difficult and severe crises that any government official could, could face. He's operating in a situation in which he is he's dealing with the possible extinction of all the people for whom he's responsible. So it's a very dire situation and clearly the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that. Yeah. He's extremely wise and we're going to see even more of that as we go forward and talk about this issue of slavery. Um, the second thing is next week or whenever we get to it, the next few verses, we're going to see a very stark contrast between the Egyptians and the family of Jacob. Okay. It's a remarkable contrast between their situations. Okay. And so that's one of the things that, that the narrator is doing here is he's drawing a contrast here between the situation the Egyptians find themselves in and the situation now that the family of Joseph, Jacob's family, find themselves in in the land of Goshen. It's a remarkable contrast as we'll see when we get to those verses. A third thing is that this passage in one sense foreshadows for us the future political constitution of Israel in the land of promise. Okay? So, when Israel comes into the land of promise and they get things established and set up and they have the Mosaic Law and they begin to function under the Mosaic Law, there are certain interesting parallels between what we'll see in Israel and what we see here in this passage that we're looking at today. And one is that when the people come into Israel, in contrast to what we see today, is the idea of private property ownership is paramount when they come into Israel. Okay. So when they come into Israel, God gives everybody their plot of ground and then he establishes the year of Jubilee, which guarantees that that land will always remain in the possession of the family in perpetuity. Okay. So that's, a, that's an interesting contrast. But what's interesting is the similarity is that in Egypt, you had Pharaoh owned all the land and everybody else was kind of tenant farmers. Okay. And that's actually the mentality that God wants the children of Israel to have when they come into the promised land. Only the government is not the landowner. God is the landowner. And he states that very explicitly when they get into the promised land. God says, I own this land <laughs> and you owe me a tithe because this land is really mine. So although they are in a human sense, the idea of private property ownership is paramount in a human sense. In a spiritual sense, even though they own the property, physically own the property, they are to understand that really all of this land is God's and he just allows me to live in it and I owe him, uh, I owe him a tariff, if you will, for the privilege of living on this land that God has given to me. Uh, and of course, also we see the parallel of the exemption for the priest, the Priests in Egypt had a, had, a, had a special situation for them. And, of course, the Levites in Israel had a special situation for them. So as the children of Israel are preparing to come into the promised land and they're out here in the wilderness and they're reading this about the way things were set up in, in, in Egypt uh, when they first come into Egypt, they begin to see parallels between Egypt and what they're, going to, what they're going to experience once they enter into the land of promise. So those are some of the reasons probably why the Holy Spirit has recorded this passage for us. But now I want to tackle just head on this very nasty issue of slavery. Okay? Um, because when you and I, living in the 21st century in America, 
read this passage or any other passage in the Scripture that talks about slaves, we tend to have this kind of gut, visceral reaction to the Word. Why? Why? Okay, but what is it about our identity and our experience that makes us react so strongly to that word? Part of it's the southern states and the treatment of, of slaves and how that whole context does Okay, our whole identity of a country is shaped. Our identity as a one nation is shaped by the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, the states pretty much saw themselves as individual states. Following the Civil War, we saw ourselves as one nation. There's a, a treme tremendous psychological shift that occurs at the Civil War. Okay. And all of that, all of our identity as a nation and, and, our, and, and much of our emphasis on freedom is, is some, some of the course is an outgrowth. Much of it is an outgrowth of the Revolutionary War and the founding fathers and all that sort of thing. But much of it is also a product of the antebellum South, the slavery in the antebellum South, the, the South before the Civil War, and all that went on there, and, and, and the whole issue of the, the paradox of, of a country that was supposedly devoted to freedom enslaving millions of people. Okay? And so we live with this kind of, can I use it, psychosis? <laughs> uh, uh, maybe that's the wrong word to use, but, but we have this gut visceral reaction when we think of slavery because the slavery that we know of, the slavery we're familiar with, is the slavery of the antebellum South prior to the Civil War and modern day slavery. Okay? Modern day slavery involves things like sexual trafficking uh, uh, and, and uh, chattel slavery. Uh, there are actually more slaves today now than there have been at any other time in world history. And in almost all cases, it involves either sexual slaves, uh, sex trafficking, or it involves, uh, it involves just mere chattel slavery. Okay? People just owned as property and, and abused and exploited in every way. Okay? That's our conception of slavery. Okay? And so when we read in the Scripture the word slave... That's what we think of. And so we react to it. So oftentimes when we come across discussions of slave, slavery in the Bible, we wonder, why doesn't God just outright condemn it? I mean, we clearly believe, even though we're Southern Baptists, most of us here in this room are Southern Baptists, and our denomination was founded on a biblical defense of slavery, although we've repented of that, thankfully, okay, uh, we as individuals have this have this reprehensible or, or this view of slavery as this reprehensible thing, which indeed it was. And even today, slavery today is a horrific plague that needs to be eradicated from the face of the earth. So when we come to Scripture and we encounter these passages in Scripture and it looks like Joseph's enslaving people and God seems to think it's okay, we get troubled by that. And many people actually, that's one of the reasons they dismiss the Scripture. They dismiss the Bible as being the Word of God because they read these passages here and in the law and even in the New Testament about slaves and they go, well... You know, this can't be God because God would never condone slavery. Well, the, the, the problem is that when I say slave to you, or when I use the word slavery to you, that conjures up in your mind certain images, right? And you get pictures of, you know, Maybe something you've seen on the Internet or something in the newspapers about modern day slavery or you or you conjure up in your mind, comes up in your mind pictures of the horrific abuses and exploitation of an entire race of people in the antebellum South. 
and not only there, but in other places in America as well. And so those are the kind of things that's come to your mind. And you wonder, why doesn't God just say, this is wrong, don't do this, and why doesn't He punish the people who practice slavery? Well, there's a reason. And the reason is because in the ancient Near East, slavery was an entirely different thing than what we think of when we think of slaves today. Okay? When, when anthropologists and historians of the ancient Near East encounter this concept of slavery in the ancient Near East, which is the time and the place that we're talking about here in Genesis, one of the things that stands out to them is how broad the term is that it's used in reference to a whole breadth of social context, contracts, and social relationships. So, for example, now, I don't want any snide political remarks made here, okay? But how many of you people think of President Obama's cabinet as slaves? We don't, right? We don't think of them as slaves. But in the ancient Near East, the, pre- the king's closest advisors were often referred to as his slaves. Now, that's something totally different, isn't it? <laughs> that conjures up a totally different picture in our mind <laughs> than some poor black family on a plantation in the antebellum south. Joseph is a perfect example. <laughs> Actually, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And so we have a whole list of ways in which the word slave is used in ancient literature, not only only the Bible, but throughout the ancient Near East. Uh, It's used to refer to a king's advisors. It's oftentimes used simply to refer to a king's subjects. Okay, so all the people in the land would be referred to as the king's slaves. Even a king himself could be a slave. If he was, remember, we've talked about uh, Caesarean vassal relationships between kingdoms where you have a vassal kingdom serving a Caesarean king. Okay, that vassal king was referred to as the slave of the Caesarean king. Well, he didn't live like a slave like we think of slaves today, did he? It's an entirely different concept. Okay, not only that, but but those who were simple tenant farmers were referred to as slaves. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And some of you as employees may feel like slaves. Okay. But so simple tenant farmers, or uh, in a a less idealistic sense, a a, a serf would be considered or called a slave. Okay. And then of course you had simple chattel slavery. Okay. You had the kind of abusive, you know, oppressive slavery that we think of. So. When you encounter the word slavery in ancient Near Eastern literature or in the scripture, you have to figure out what's it talking about? In which sense is this word being used? Okay. Now, quite clearly, when we look at what Joseph is doing with the Egyptians, that's something radically different from what we're familiar with in pre-Civil War South America. South Southern United States, okay, or in Britain prior to Wilberforce, okay, that's, that's an entirely different thing. One of the one of the paradoxes of American history is that American slavery is one of the worst, most oppressive, brutal forms of slavery ever practiced in the history of the world. Uh, that disagrees with what I've heard. Right? I, I'm not sure where you're getting information, but. It was bad, but not near as bad as in other parts of the country. I mean, other parts of the, of the world. Uh, well, at the at the time, at the time, what I'm what I'm doing is I'm comparing American slavery to slavery in general, the majority of slavery in ancient Near East. Okay, that's what I'm comparing okay. to. Okay, okay. Now, there are a number of contrasts, and uh, we may not get through all of this. But some of this, I think, is important for us to understand because as we read the scripture, we encounter all these passages about slavery. We get into the law and the law, 
in the Mosaic Law actually starts laying out rules and laws about slaves and that sort of thing. And it oftentimes is troubling to us. So I think it, it helps us to stop and think this through. But there are, uh, there are some striking contrasts between the general, I'm speaking generally here, the general practice of slavery in the ancient Near East and the general practice of slavery in, in the Western Hemisphere in the last three or four hundred years. Okay. There's, there are some striking contrasts. One of the first is the motivation for slavery. Okay. The kind of slavery that you and I are familiar with, the motivation for slavery is for the economic, economic advantage of the elite. Okay. So, slavery in America was designed for one purpose. It was to make the plantation owners richer, okay? And subsequently, the people they associated with and did business with. It was, it was, it was for the economic advantage of the elite. There was no contemplation of any advantage to the slave, okay? Uh, that is a marked contrast with the vast majority of slavery in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, the primary motivation for slavery is exactly what we see in this passage. The primary motivation, for, and there are exceptions, but the primary motivation for slavery in the ancient Near East was the alleviation of suffering of the poor. So, the, so much so that the, the vast majority of slaves in the, in the ancient Near East were voluntary, as they were in this passage. Okay. That stands in stark contrast to slavery in America as we know it. Yes, exactly. Okay. So we're talking about something like indentured servitude or tenant farmers. Now, one of the striking contrasts between uh, more modern slavery and ancient slavery is this idea of voluntary service. Now, it is true that oftentimes parents would sell their children into slavery. Or they would sell their man would sell his wife into slavery. More often than not, he would sell himself into slavery, as the Egyptians do here. Okay, and we think, well, how is that voluntary? Well, in some cases, even when a child was sold into slavery, they had to agree to it. But, but in the vast majority of cases, the reason someone was sold into slavery was to lift them out of their dire economic situation and place them in another situation where they would be better off. Okay, which is exactly what we see happening here with the Egyptians. Okay, so there's an entirely different motivation involved. So much so that we have this element, like we see here in this passage, of voluntary submission into slavery. Now, we see a very stark contrast here in chapter 47 with the early part of the book of Exodus, just a few chapters later, when the children of Israel are subjected into slavery. Okay. So here we have the Egyptians subjected to slavery. And what is their response? How do they respond to Joseph? Save our lives. You saved our lives. We, you know, we, we, we want your favor. We, you know, they're thrilled with the new arrangement. Because their lives have been spared and their, security is, their, their future is secured for them. Okay. When the Israelites are, are subjected into slavery in the first part of Exodus... What's their response? Yeah, they groan for 400 years. They groan, okay? And the reason is because the motivation for the slavery of the Israelites is radically different than the reason for the, for the motivation for the slavery of the Egyptians. The reason for the enslavement of the Israelites is was the fear of the Israelites and the fear that they would eventually dominate the Egyptians. And so they subjected them to what amounted to chattel slavery. Okay. But we have an entirely different situation here with the, with the Egyptians. They are voluntarily submitting because they understand that it is a way to lift themselves out of poverty. So even in cases in the ancient Near East where someone would sell a child or their children, or even a wife into slavery, oftentimes it was done out of love and compassion and concern for that child. And the understanding was that they could then be lifted out of this situation and placed into a better situation. 
I read just three or four years ago, read a book on modern day slavery and, uh, and I read uh, stories of, of uh, families in Haiti who were selling their children into slavery. You go, how could anyone sell their child into slavery? But these parents were being told that if they would sell their little children into slavery, they would go to America and they would live in America and they would be much better off. Okay? And so that's what they understood was happening. And so they voluntarily gave, gave their children away as much as it was a heart-wrenching thing for them. They would voluntarily sell their children into slavery because they believed that their children would be better off. The reality is they ended up here in the United States. Yes, I'm talking about the United States, 21st century. They would end up here in the United States. They would end up as literal chattel slaves in the houses of wealthy people in America. Okay. And, and of course, the circumstances turn out much worse than, than what the family anticipated. But, but that illustrates that there are motivations for slavery and there are different kinds of slavery and we have to take those things into consideration when we encounter slavery in the scripture. And, and we have to understand then that in this passage, what Joseph is doing for the Egyptians is, is he is actually elevating them. He is raising them up. He's giving them something that they could not otherwise have, which is life. They're going to die. And he guarantees that they're going to live. And then, he, and then he gives them an arrangement. He treats them with dignity so that 80% of everything they grow is theirs. Can you imagine how the history of the United States would be different if 80% of all the tobacco that was grown in the South, in the antebellum South, had been turned over to the possession of the slaves who grew it? It would have been a totally different world, wouldn't it? Okay, so so we have this radical contrast between slavery as we know it and ancient Near East. Now, that's not to deny that there was chattel slavery in the ancient Near East. There clearly was. And there was clearly involuntary slavery in the the ancient Near East. For example, most classic example would be when you had a war and some king would come in and he'd conquer and he'd carry all and it happened to Israel and they were all carried off into Babylon. But when Israel was carried off into Babylon, what happened to them? Did they become chattel slaves? They were given jobs. They were given land. They were they were they became essentially indentured servants or tenured or, or, or tenant farmers. Okay, that's what they became. And they were, of course, they didn't have complete freedom. They couldn't return to Israel until the king permitted them to do so. But it's an entirely different type of thing. So what we need to understand then, when we encounter this idea of slavery in the scripture, is that we're not dealing with this very rigidly defined idea of slavery that we often carry in our minds as 21st century Americans. But we're dealing with a concept that is very broad, covers a whole range of social relationships in a totally different culture for different motivations, most of it voluntary as opposed to compulsory, uh, where there are actually legal stipulations as to how these slaves must be treated with humanity and dignity. And one of the most classic examples of that is in Exodus chapter 21. But even in even in the in the pagan uh, uh, systems and in uh, in the other nations of the ancient Middle East, there were very clear laws and stipulations about how slaves were to be treated. Okay, so these are all things that make slavery in the ancient Near East, in a patriarchal tribal culture, in an agrarian society, something that is not nearly the negative, horrific oppressive, exploitive thing that you and I are familiar with. Okay. And in fact is, as we see in the story of Joseph, is actually a means of, in, of instilling in people dignity, giving them hope for the future, and lifting them out of their dire, desperate, life-threatening circumstance. And so when we ask the question which you know, would logically come to our minds when we come to the idea of slavery with the baggies that we come with. 
Why didn't God just ban slavery? Why didn't God just prohibit slavery? Why didn't God just tell the children of Israel, you shall have no slaves? Why didn't He do that? Okay. Because if God had done that, there are millions and millions and millions of people in the ancient Near East who would have perished. And so what God did in the law was He set forth, okay, if you've got slaves, if you've got foreign slaves, this is how you treat them. If you've got Israeli slaves, this is how you will treat them. And He laid down very specific guidelines as to how they were to be treated, but He didn't abolish it because it was in that society, in that culture, it was their, it was their social security net. It was how people's lives were saved and spared and how people were lived, lifted out of poverty. And one of the striking contrasts between antebellum uh, slavery and slavery in the Western Hemisphere in the last three or four hundred years and slavery in the ancient Near East is one of the striking differences is the attitude of the master towards the slave. And what we see in antebellum South is that the slaves were amassed on these plantations and they basically were... Uh, they were just gangs of slaves and they were housed in barracks and, and they were just simply chattel slaves for the production of tobacco and other crops for the advantage of the elite. In the ancient Near East, slaves invariably, because they lived in a patriarchal culture, in a tribal society, they invariably lived in the home of their master. They were, and there are exceptions to this, of course, uh, which is why there were laws and rules within the culture on how to deal with slaves. But they lived in the home of the master and they had a very close family-type relationship because that's the culture they lived in. Okay? So, so when we come to Scripture and we counter this concept of slavery, we need to set aside our understanding Standing of slavery, not because it's wrong, but because it's limited. We need to set that aside and we need to understand slavery in this broader sense and understanding that, it, that we actually know from the ancient Near East. Yes, sir. Even in the case of the Israelites, uh, right before they left Egypt, they lived in their own homes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as they begin, we see they actually even own property, as we'll see next week. Okay. And there are a number of other contrasts. We don't have time to go into them all, but there are a number of other contrasts. And they get even more stark when you get into the actual Old Testament definition of slavery and how it's to be done. We don't have time to go into all that, but that's just to give you some meat to think about. Uh, to help you as you understand the scriptures as they talk about this whole issue of slavery. Okay? Next week we'll go on.